Say again, Rich. They had a black guy who uh, saw a whole bunch of people all dressed up in medical garb. I don't know. They must have worked at a local hospital or something. And he says, the black lives matter. And everyone says, yeah. And so every time he said something, they were agreeing with him. And then he says, then he said, uh, we got to stop the black men from getting shot down by the cops. And everyone said, yeah. How about the genocide of the black babies in the womb? And he said, I don't hear anything. And he says, I guess black babies' lives don't matter, do they? And he didn't hear anything again. He said, I thought so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, yeah, Doug. numbers two. Well, the numbers I was hearing too is that twenty-five percent of all the abortions in the country are blacks. Yeah, I think that's a fairly accurate number. I think I've read that. Doug, what did you think about my uh, my thought about slaves? Your thought about what? Slaves, slavery. Oh, I yeah, I I kind of viewed it as a bit of a double witness for some things I began to think about Sunday, Sunday evening, and. Uh, um, I mean, slavery's horrible, isn't it, Doug? It's horrible, deplorable. What what happened to those people of color? It's just. I mean, don't we need to define what slavery is? Somebody, you're beholden to somebody else, right? You, you, they own you. Let's let's use their definition. They own you, which means they dictate your behavior. And um, so. So this whole system of usury is predicated by slavery to the to the, to, to the lender, right? And if you have children, they get to uh, take control of them when they decide they want to. Let me give you something because uh, your your statement is, um, I think it's pretty relevant to some thoughts that I put together here for fellowship too. Slave from the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. Number one, a person who is wholly subject subject to the will of another, one who has no will of his own, but whose person and services are wholly under the control of another. In the early state of the world, and to this day among some barbarous nations, prisoners of war are considered and treated as slaves. The slaves of modern times are more generally purchased like horses and oxen. Number two definition. One who has lost the poser of resistance or one who surrenders himself to any power whatever 
as a slave to passion, to lust, or ambition. Three, a mean person, one in the lowest state of life. Four, a drudge, one who labors like a slave. Now I'm going to give you another definition. This is the definition of servitude. The condition of a slave. The state of involuntary subjection to a master. Slavery. Bondage. Such is the state of slaves in America. A large portion of the human race is in servitude. Definition two. The state of a servant. Definition three, the condition of a conquered country. Definition four, a state of slavish dependence. Some persons may be in love with splendid servitude. Definition five, servants collectively, not in use. Did you really hear any difference between the two definitions? Subject to a to a higher power. I mean, one of the things that I came across was I'll share with you as as we go along this evening, perhaps. And but um, it, it's very interesting to me. Those two definitions are so similar that they're almost indistinguishable. And to understand servitude is to understand slavery, is the way I see it. The condition of a slave, the state of involuntary subjection to a master, slavery, bondage, such is the state of slaves in America. A large portion of the human race is in servitude. See, there was a a point in time in which I believe it it could have been potentially argued that those on the North American continent were a portion of the human race who had thrown off their servitude. But as we've come to know and understand, they have reshackled themselves under servitude. Agreed? Uh, yeah, but then we must say that we voluntarily subject ourselves to Jesus. Servitude to him, his way, and I know that's not what we're talking about right now, but that would be an ideal situation of servitude, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, and you you raise a good point because our Creator, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, said He would like us to have a state of voluntary subjection. That's the ideal situation, isn't it? Right. And and that voluntary subjection to a master who 
already knows what is an appropriate uh, methodology for existence for the condition of, of humanity, um, it becomes no bondage at all, but rather it becomes a service, a servitude. And child to the parent. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and it, as I say, your, you know, your your text to me, um, I believe, was kind of to me a second a little bit of a double witness to what I was thinking last evening, uh, Sunday evening, actually. You you sent me that on Monday. Um, the thing that I had sent to Russell, Rich, was a, a comment that, yeah, I was driving home, I think it was on Saturday, and, and I, I was thinking about that interview that Rush had. And the the guy said we've got to dismantle somebody willing to dismantle this system of white supremacy and the thought occurred to me what is the most the highest form if you will or the pinnacle or i didn't know that i actually had the right word in my head but of of white supremacy and it occurred to me that it was Christ because Christ is epitomized amongst the Christian nations as being one of us, meaning Germanic, Scandinavian, Celtic, Kindred, Anglo-Saxon, European peoples. And it wasn't but, I think it was last evening, my sister-in-law sent my wife something that uh, some guy on Fox News, I guess, had said about he thinks it's time to tear down the, the, the epitomizations uh, or the uh, imagery of, of Christ and his European and white futures, features um, as that symbol of white supremacy that is, is, is no more to be tolerated. And that's what I had sent. That's what I'd sent Russell on Saturday. And I don't know when the guy said it or where he was. I guess he was associated with either an interview on Fox or he is a commentator or something. I don't know. Very logical uh, in line with their thinking right now. Because I've heard many of them say, let's take it all the way. Let's don't stop here with General Lee. Uh, so yesterday they pulled down Grant, and this morning uh, Rice University said they want the dorm, call it the Black Shack. They drug down Mr. Rice's statue at Rice University. Yeah. So it has to, it has to the pinnacle of this. Rebellion has to be Jesus Christ statues and actually his teachings. 
because, yeah, that's it. Once they do that, they've got her whipped, don't they? Uh, well, yeah, and it, it kind of showed me that, once again, we've been right all along knowing what it is that they're all about. And what this is all about is, you know, I think so many people yet in America, and certainly Christians, uh, especially Judeo-Christians, uh, but white people in general continue to be propagandized and they don't really recognize the propaganda. And um, this is truly about tearing down the Christian foundations of Christian nations all over the globe. Uh, we just happen to be seeing it here in America, but we don't recognize because we've been taught the propaganda, we don't recognize that it, this happened almost a century ago. In fact, one could safely say it was a century ago in Germany because it all began just after the turn of the century in the 1900s. And by 1920 and 5 and 28 and 38, um, there was a full-fledged war against those professing Christians in Germany. And in the United States, it wasn't so much of a concern because, you see, the United States had, had, had adopted that, that compact called the Constitution for the United States of America. And one of the first planks of that constitutional uh, document was in the Bill of Rights. And in that Bill of Rights was the declaration that, that the individual uh, preserved unto itself the right to freedom of religion. And we got freedom of religion. So they weren't concerned about America because they know that freedom of religion means freedom of religion. How are you going to argue that uh, against that when you walk into a judicial arrangement? Uh, somebody there is going to have to agree that that's exactly what that document says. In spite of what people might have believed it said or might have believed the underpinnings of it were, it's irrelevant. And we have freedom of religion, and that means if you're an agnostic, an atheist, if you want to be a devil worshiper, if you want to be a, you know, uh, whatever, you're yeah. entitled yeah. to do it. You want to practice your Judaism and infuse your Ju Judaistic uh, laws and your Talmudic laws and so forth into the structure of the legal system, into the structure of the very governmental system of the country, then you simply just need to get your people voted into positions whereby that can be dutifully done. If you don't want anybody to speak out against your group or your race or your people or so forth, then you just need to have people in positions and so forth to be able to, to uh, rule on decisions that become precedent. So America was very easy to conquer if you really think about it. But those who, who operated a little bit outside and said, no, I'm going to write the things the way that they ought to be, 
and I'm going to govern myself and dictate, you know, uh, that I'm not going to let, you know, communism and and various other isms, you know, creep into the country and uh, pollute my children and the generations of children to follow them. Why you were you were tre- treated as somewhat of a, you know, a very dangerous man, and. You know, we all can agree, I think, that, you know, uh, men can operate, men, women, I'm not just putting men, men can operate outside of, of uh, the confines of, uh, of, of being proper and can do things that are improper and unjust, etc. But they've propagandized us into believing that some people who actually were trying to do good things for their country were the most evil and vile people that ever graced the face of the earth. And when we revisit history, we find out a lot of things that we just were never told. But back to your thought, Russell, about slaves, I want to read to you. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I will not remember. In the zone in Seattle, <coughs> nappy-headed things that have taken over that territory, they're in full control. Can we agree on that? Yep. Okay. How many people have been murdered since they set up that little control zone? Three, two? Well, if it's one, I... it's too many, right? Yeah, I I think it's up to at least three, if not four now. Okay. All right. Now, let's take that and let's go over to Rhodesia. Let's go to Rhodesia and let's say let's clear the white man out and put Robert Mugabe in charge. Is it Mugabe or Mugabe, something like that? And we'll even rename the country. And it's a black paradise now, isn't it? Yeah. They're in full control. They make all the decisions that General Lee and all these statues are dragging down said, no, this won't work. Now they've got this country, Zimbabwe, and it's a killing field, isn't it? Murder goes, it's everyday occurrence. They're fleeing from the leader. So we have an example there. Or let's go to Chicago. Exactly. Complete control of Chicago or Baltimore. Doesn't matter. Take your pick of any major city. And we see murder, murder, rob, steal, kill, destroy, don't we? Yep. So here we are on the phone tonight. These three men are four or five or six. I don't know. And we say, we don't want to live like that. And now we are called the nutcases, aren't we? Yep. Okay, I got it out. Now, you were saying. Well, you know, um, yeah, I was thinking about maybe titling this fellowship, uh, Hey, Whitey, learn your history. You know, because this is where we're at. We don't know anything as a people, and all we do is go to work, and basically we're slaves. We go to work, 
and, and we try to bring home what is necessary to feed the family, try to put something aside for the children's children's generation because we are admonished to do so. And um, this, is, this is what we do. And we don't know anything about our history. Nope. Let me give you this. David Brian Davis, writing in the New York Review of Books, October 11, 1990, page 37. This is not an old writing, ladies and gentlemen. As late as the 14th and 15th centuries, continuing shipment of white slaves, some of them Christians, flowed from the booming slave markets on the northern Black Sea coast into Italy, Spain, Egypt, and the Mediterranean islands. From Barbados to Virginia, colonists showed few scruples about reducing their less fortunate countrymen to a status little different from that of chattel slaves. The prevalence and suffering of white slaves, serfs, and indentured servants in the early modern period suggests that there was nothing inevitable about limiting plantation slavery to people of African origin, end quote. Let me give you another view. Al Rukamis, R-U-C-H-A-M-E-S, in The Sources of Racial Thought in Colonial America states, quote, the slave trade worked in both directions, with white merchandise as well as black, end quote. Journal of Negro History, number 52, pages 251 to 273. Another. In 1659, the English Parliament debated the practice of selling British whites into slavery in the New World. In the debate, the whites were referred to not as indentured servants, but as slaves, whose enslavement threatened liberties of all Englishmen. Thomas Burton, Parliamentary Diary, 1656-59, Volume 4, pages 253-274. to Another, Dr. Hilary McDee Beckles of the University of Hall, England, writes regarding white slave labor, quote, indenture contracts were, inali- were alienable. Indenture contracts were alienable, the ownership of which could easily be transferred, like that of any other commodity, as with slaves. Ownership changed without their participation in the dialogue concerning transfer. End quote. Beckles, Indentured Servitude, White Pro-Slavery, The Americas, Volume 41, Number 2, Page 21. Again, in the Calendar of State Papers, Colonial Series, America and West Indies of 1701, we read of a protest over the, quote, encouragement to the spiriting away of Englishmen without their consent and selling them for slaves, which has been a practice very frequent and known by the name of kidnapping, end quote. In the British West Indies, plantation slavery was instituted as early as 1627. In Barbados, by the 1640s, there was an estimated 25,000 slaves of whom 21,700 were white. Okay, hold on just a minute. What's the title of this message? Hey, Whitey, learn your history. 
Okay, here's the rest of it. Or you are damned to repeat it or deemed to repeat it. You you recreate the wheel, don't you? Yeah. You 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 have to go fight those battles that have already been fought for many years ago. You got to start all over at the bottom, don't you? Because you failed to have a holiday that educated people about white slaves. It was blotted out of the books, wasn't it? It was blotted out. For a purpose. For a purpose. We must remember always the Trojan horse. It was a gift, wasn't it? <laughs> right. Or it Let me give the... Continue. Let me give the citation for that last quote. That was some observation on the island of Barbados, Calendar of State Papers, Colonial Series, page 528. One more, not a couple more, maybe a few more. Of the fact that the wealth of Barbados was founded on the backs of white slave later, there can be no doubt. White slave laborers from Britain and Ireland were the mainstay of the sugar colony until the mid-1640s. There were few blacks in Barbados. George Downing wrote to John Winthrop, the colonial governor of Massachusetts, in 1645 that planters who wanted to make a fortune in the British West Indies must procure white slave labor out of England if they wanted to succeed. Elizabeth Donnan, Documents Illustrative of the History of the Slave Trade to America, pages 125 to 126. The Englishman, William Edis, after observing white slaves in America in the 1770s, wrote, Generally speaking, they groan beneath a worse than Egyptian bondage. Letters from America, London, 1792. Governor Sharp of the Maryland Colony compared the property interests of the planters in their white slaves with the estate of an English farmer consisting of a multitude of cattle, end quote. The disciplinary and revenue laws of early Virginia, circa 1631 to 45, did not discriminate Negroes in bondage from whites in bondage. William Henning, editor. Statutes at Large of Virginia, Volume 1, pages 174, 198, 200, 243, and 306. For records of wills in which lands, goods, chattels, cattle, money, Negroes, English servants, horses, sheep, and household stuff were all sold together, see the Lancaster County Records in Virginia Colonial Abstracts. Uh, lay historian... Colonel A.B. Ellis, writing in the British newspaper Argosy, May 6, 1893, quote, Few but readers of old colonial state papers and records are aware that between the years 1649 to 1690, a lively trade was carried on between England and the plantations, as the colonies were then called, in political prisoners, where they were sold by auction to the colonists for various terms of years, sometimes for life as slaves, end quote. In a statement smuggled out of the New World and published in London, whites in bondage did not call themselves 
excuse me, whites in bondage did not call themselves indentured servants. In their writing, they referred to themselves as England's slaves. That is plural, England's slaves and England's merchandise. That's from Marcellus Rivers, Oxenbridge Foil, England's Slavery, 1659. Uh, eyewitnesses like Per Labat, who visited the West Indian slave plantations of the 17th century, which were built and manned by white slaves, labeled them, quote, white slaves. Um, this is a good one here, so I'll give this one too. The height of academic and media fraud is revealed in the monopolistic trademark status the official controllers of education and mass communications have successfully established between the definition of the word slave and Negro while labeling descriptions of the historic experience of whites in slavery about fallacy. Now let me repeat that. The height of academic and media fraud is revealed in the monopolistic trademark status the official controllers of education and mass communications have successfully established between the definition of the word slave and the Negro, while labeling descriptions of the historic experience of whites in slavery a fallacy. Yet the very word slave, which the establishment's consensus school of history pretends cannot legitimately be applied to whites, is derived from the word Slav. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word slave is another name for white people of Eastern European ancestry, the Slavs. Compact edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, page 2858. In other words, slave has always been a term for and a definition of servile condition of white people. Yet we are told by the Professor Kratz that it's not correct to refer to whites as slaves, but as only as servants even though the very root of the word is derived from the historical fact of white slavery, end quote. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. So I did not know my history. Well, let me give you some more, because I'm sure that a lot of people aren't. And I thought that this would be something that would do us well. I want to tell you about who were the first slaves in America. The enslavement of whites extended throughout the American colonies and white slave labor was a crucial factor in the economic development of the colonies. Gradually it developed into a fixed system every bit as rigid and codified as Negro slavery was to become. In fact, Negro slavery was efficiently established in colonial America because black slaves were governed, organized, and controlled by the structures and organizations that were first used to enslave and control whites. Black slaves were latecomers fitted into a system already developed. That from Ulrich B. Phillips, 
Life and Labor in the Old South, pages 25 and 26. You want some more? Sure. Yet the terms servant and slave were often used interchangeably to refer to people whose status was clearly that of permanent lifetime enslavement. Quote, an account of the English sugar plantations in the British Museum, the Stowe Manuscript, written circa 1660 to 1685, refers to black and white slaves as servants. The colonies were plentifully supplied with Negro and Christian servants, which are the nerves and sinews of a plantation. Christian was a euphemism for whites. In the North American colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries and subsequently in the United States, servant was the usual designation for a slave. Compact edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, page 2,739. Hold on, hold on. So what it sounds like to me is that this term is a huge part of their power. Because if you take that away from them, what do they have? What excuse do they have? What What is their excuse? If you say the slavery thing was a system set up for whites by whites, that was already in place before you ever came here. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, I definitely get what you're saying because as I was coming up on a conclusion for thoughts that I had, you know, for to this evening and stuff, is I was going to ask us, what does all of this mean? And you're already touching on what it means. So let's hold that thought and let's let's reach a conclusion that I think would be beneficial for all of us to reflect upon. And it would be my prayer that this audio archive could be disseminated wide and sent out and that people will um, be encouraged by what they hear. And so we'll wrap up with some of those thoughts. Let me give you another one here. This is, again, proofs that I have that whites were first slaves in America. The documentary record debunks the propaganda that, well, let me do this first. In original documents of white merchants who transported Negroes from Africa, the blacks were called servants. One notes that the company of royal adventurers referred to their cargo as negers, N-E-G-E-R-S. Negro Servants, Servants from Africa, Handlin, page 205. The documentary record debunks the propaganda that slavery was strictly a racist operation, part of a conspiracy of white supremacy, because, number one, whites as well as blacks were enslaved. Number two, in the 17th century, slaves of both races were called servants. Number three, Colonial merchants of the 17th century America had no qualms about enslaving their own white kindred, Oscar Hanlon, end quote. 
through the first, uh, uh, I'll do this one, <clears throat> a few more here. It was in this sense that Negro servants were sometimes called slaves. For that matter, it also applied to white Englishmen. In New England and New York, too, there had early been an intense desire for cheap, unfree hands, for bond slavery, villainage, or captivity, whether it be white, Negro, or Indian. Handlin, pages 202 to 203, 04, and 218. The early laws against, uh, I'll skip that. It was just about runaways. Uh, survey of the various ad hoc codes and regulations devised in the 17th century for the governing of those in bondage reveals no special category for black slaves. That from Henning, Volume 1, pages 226, 258, and 540. Um, the contemporary academic consensus on slavery in America represents history by retroactive fiat, decreeing that conclusions about the entire epoch fit the characterization of its final stage, the 19th century southern plantation system. 17th century colonial slavery and 19th century American slavery are not a seamless garment. Historians who pretend otherwise have to maintain several fallacies, the chief among these being the supposition that white servants constituted the majority of servile laborers in the colonial period. They worked in privileged or even luxurious conditions which were forbidden to black. In truth, white slaves were often restricted to doing the dirty backbreaking field work of white blacks, excuse me, work, field work while blacks, even Indians, were taken into plantation mansion houses to work as domestics. Contemporaries were also aware of the popular stereotyping of white female indentured servants as whores, sluts, debauched wenches, discouraged their use in elite planter households. That's from Beckles, Natural Rebels, page 56 to 57. Again, in the 17th century, white slaves were cheaper to acquire than Negroes, and therefore were often mistreated to a greater extent, having paid a bigger price for the Negro. The planters treated the black better than they did their Christian white servant. Even the Negroes recognized this and did not hesitate to show their contempt for those white men who they could see were worse off than themselves. That from Bridenbaugh, page 118. It was white slaves who built America from its very beginnings and made up the overwhelming majority of slave laborers in the colonies in the 17th century. Negro slaves seldom had to do the kind of virtually lethal work the white slaves of America did in the formative years of settlement. The frontier demands for heavy manual labor, such as felling trees, soil clearance, general infrastructure development, had been satisfied primarily by white indentured servants between 1627 and 1643. Beckles, Natural Rebels, page 8. Are you enjoying this? Uh, enjoying is a bad word. Context. Are we realizing it? 
Hundreds of thousands of whites in colonial America were owned outright by their masters and died in slavery. They had no control over their own lives and were auctioned on the block and examined like livestock exactly like black slaves, with the exception that these whites were enslaved by their own race. White slaves found themselves powerless as individuals without honor or respect and driven into commodity production, not by any inner sense of moral duty, but by the outer stimulus of the whip. Beckles, White Servitude, page 5. Upon arrival in America, white slaves were put up for sale by the ship captains or the merchants. Families were often separated under these circumstances when wives and offspring were auctioned off to the highest bidder. Foster R. Dulles, Labor in America, A History, page 7. Um, those that were passed over at entry they were put up for auction at public fairs. Prospective buyers felt their muscles, checked their teeth like cattle. Sharon Salinger, to serve well and faithfully, labor and indentured servants in Pennsylvania, 1682 to 1800, page 97. Indentured servants were sold at auction, sometimes after being stripped naked. Rodiger, page 30. We were exposed to sale in public fairs so as as so many brute beasts. Eckridge, page 129. Those whites whom no buyer could be found even after marketing them inland were returned to the slave trader to be sold for a pittance. These whites were officially referred to as refuse and lumps. Unloading large numbers wholesale called lumping was generally a last resort that yielded smaller rewards. White slaver James Cheston wrote to his partners, the servants go off slower than I expected. I shall try them a few days longer in the retail way and then lump the remainder, end quote. Large-scale purchasers generally retail servants farther inland. They drive them through the country like a parcel of sheep until they can sell them to advantage, wrote white slave John Harrower. The notion of a contract and the legal status of the white in servitude became a fiction as a result of the exigencies of the occasion. In 1623, George Sandus, the treasurer of Virginia, was forced to sell the only uh, remaining 11 white slaves of his company for lack of provisions to support them. Seven of these white people were sold for 150 pounds of tobacco. The slave status of whites held in colonial bondage can also be seen by studying the disposition of the estates by the wealthy whites. Whites in bondage were rated as inventories and dispossessed of by will and by deed along with the rest of the property. They were bought, sold, bartered, gambled away, mortgaged, weighed on scales like farm animals and taxed as property. I want my reparations. Yeah. 10,000 whites were kidnapped from England in the year 1670 alone. Edward Channing, History of the United States, Volume 2, page 369. The very word kidnapper was first coined in Britain in the 1600s to describe those who captured and sold white children into slavery. Kid, 
nabbers, kidnapper. Get it? Kidnapper. You nab a kid. Now you're a kidnapper. Kidnapper in our modern vernacular. Richard B. Morris in Government and Labor in Early America notes that in the colonies, however, apprenticeships were merely a highly specialized and favored form of bond labor. The more comprehensive colonial institution included all persons bound to labor for periods of years as determined by either agreement or by law, both minors and adults, and Indians and Negroes, as well as whites. Page 310. So perhaps this movement is directed at the wrong the wrong cause. Kind of always well, back to that uh, who, who's the big banker boys up in New York? Uh what's their name? The big one. The biggest of the big Yeah. Ever wonder how all those people get so much money and they just sit up in offices and make deals? Goldman Sachs. Nobody's tearing down their statues, are they? No one's. Well, you know, they 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 did um, what they call that uh, when they went up to Wall Street and uh, what they call that. What they call that movement six eight years ago? Uh, yeah, the one funded by Soros. Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street. That was a predecessor, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, since we've already swerved into it. I don't see any reason why we can't discuss that part of it. I've got some more things here. But let's have a discussion on this because, you see, I was going to ask the question, what, what can we glean from what we know so far? We've been misguided. We've been deceived. I guess that's the best answer to your question. So far, we've been programmed with deception about the whole issue of slavery. All right, but let's go one more thing. Let me ask it this way. What's actually unseen? You said it earlier. There's something unseen in all of this, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It has to do with usury, doesn't it? Well, it has to do with the love of money having no boundaries. If you will enslave your own people just because you view them as less than you. This is the root of Christianity because Christianity was the way of God being more effectively projected and conveyed 
to the world at large. And so my point is, is that we are seeing and witnessing in this history not this is the point of pointing this out is not so that we walk away and say, see, our people were slaves too. The reason is, is that we should be pointing out to the people, and I know they may not hear it, but at least we have the Christian argument and the right argument once again, and that is it is never okay and has never been okay to do these things unless an indentured service is an indentured servant because he is working off the reparations for the crimes that he has committed, which is in line with the divine immutable laws of God. So these people were rich, wealthy people, just like we see rich, wealthy people. And where did we find those rich, wealthy people? We found them in leadership positions doing the very things that the biblical record shows us. It was the leaders who were involved in the race mixing. It was the leaders who were involved in the bondage and the servitude and the uh, um, idolatry and the taking of usury and uh, um, the improper applications of the law, all in an effort to hold down the other guy. It's clearly evident, isn't it? Yeah, that Jesus Christ is the path to freedom. Absolutely. And would this would this information be, uh, you know, you hear some blacks lamenting the church. You you hear some blacks lamenting the church's job in the black community. But how about whitey's community? You know, we were all ushered into schools because we were disallowed, our parents were disallowed to homeschool until it got so bad that even the whites themselves within the Congress and the legislators and so forth said, you know, if they want to come out of it, let them come out of it. And so many states started loosening up and allowing for more homeschooling to be done. But, you know, it wasn't enough because everybody was sucked into the system already. And not only that, they're paying for the system. We've paid property taxes. We have paid property taxes for a quarter of a century. And a quarter of a century, we're talking about $125,000 to $150,000, of which most of it went to schools that we did not even use and had no desire to use. And you did too, Russell. And you did too, Rich. 
Yeah. Absolutely, and that makes me a slave. Exactly, because according to that definition, we're definitely ruled by somebody or something, and and it is not the laws of Jesus Christ. you voice your opinion you'll hear some say something like this well you want good roads you want police protection you want fire protection you want schools or your 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 land will be full of idiots and think about that think think about that right think about that right there so in other words rich russell and doug Combined, we have probably spent close, let's just say it's 350 to a half a million dollars on all of this safety in our lifetimes, and now they're telling us or preparing to tell us that, you know, it was all for naught. Yeah. We did not realize, you see, that we were just supposed to leave everybody alone to their own devices and everybody everybody and everything would work out just fine. Incidentally, isn't that just like what they taught in the days of uh, the free love 60s is that just leave them alone. It, they'll work it out of this system. They'll be all right, won't they? And what did they do? They took over the government institutions and the positions of power. And then they ran things and ran it into the ground and stole the, the largest and the wealth and lorded over their fellow brethren, didn't they? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there was a song called We Can Work It Out. Wasn't that by the Beatles? We can work it out. The Reverend Charles Edwards Lester, the great-grandson of the Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards and later the American consul in Italy, stated that if he had a choice between having his children born Negro slaves in the South or poor people in England, he would choose the former. The former was a Negro slave in the South. I would sooner see the children, and this is a direct quote, quote, I would sooner see the children of my love born to the heritage of southern slavery than to see them subjected to the blighting bondage of the poor English operative's life. Lester, The Glory and the Shame of England, Volume 1, page 8. Theophilus Fisk, a Connecticut publisher and Jackson Democrat, ranked as one of the major leaders of the early U.S. labor movement. Fisk denounced wealthy white campaigners for Negro rights and in 1836 gave what has been described as a fierce anti-abolitionist speech in Southern Carolina. Fisk's anger derived from his observation that white slavery has been ignored. Fisk found that America's slaves had pale faces. And as abolitionism grew in Boston, called for an end to indulging sympathies for blacks in the South and for immediate emancipation of whites, excuse me, of white 
factory slaves of the North. Rodiger, page 75. Charles Douglas, president of the New England Association of Farmers, mechanics, and other working men, described the 4,000 white children and women at work in the factories of Lowell, Massachusetts in the 1860s as dragging out a life of slavery and wretchedness. These establishments, meaning the New England factories, are the present abode of wretchedness, disease, and misery, end quote. Yeah, we actually have people in our town here on the Cape who uh, own those factories. <laughs> yeah. And their name is Lowell. Yeah, my sister-in-law went out there and stayed in one of those things on the Cape, and I think they paid something like, is it right if I were to say $4,000 a week? Yeah, pretty That's nice not, place for grand week. Yeah. Well, they were being put up by their employers, you know, doing government contract work. Oh, yeah, there's all kinds of rip-offs like that. But these guys had so much money in the Depression that on Sundays all these rich people would get together and run Model T's and Model A Ford's off cliffs for entertainment. Down into the ocean, huh? Oh, it didn't need an ocean. They just run them off a cliff. Yeah. Well, there were early industrial in the north, factory systems in the north, chimney sweepers, and southern plantations in the south. And all of these were solutions to poor whites and poor blacks. And it's the same today. And so, so the black man is frustrated. And I understand the frustration. Do not misunderstand, though. Understanding the frustration, I do not give a pass, and none of you do either, and nobody should. We don't give a pass to the behavior that they seek and desire, which is they want to be left alone. But when you are enslaved, as we are, you see, we've come, become conditioned to the fact that as long as we've got a little something that we get to enjoy, there's something, our gadgets, our technology, things that we get to enjoy, you know, uh, a, a boat out on the lake or, you know, any of the other things that any one of us does for whatever our enjoyment is and, and our time away from the drudgery. The fact remains that the rest of the time is generally drudgery. Now, don't get me wrong. We all give thanks for our bountiful blessings. We get thanks for the opportunity that we have to do something that we maybe want to do or have wanted to do in the work that we do or that we do it with joy in our hearts, or that we do it with 
a sense of gratification and so forth. But we all have come to realize that this system of bondage that is upon us in America is largely a result of our violation of God's law and our taking upon us this idolatrous, idolatrous document that we've come to revere and hold so sacred to our hearts of this Constitution and its Bill of Rights. It is the Christian foundation that was first laid in America which began the greatest transformation of the human condition for mankind the world over. You could tear it down if you want, but should we receive the favor of the Almighty God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, once more? Should we receive it once more? By God, I tell you what, we will forbid you forever from coming into our midst until every knee will bow to the obedience of the divine immutable laws, statutes, and judgments of this creator, Yahweh. You know, that's, that's really where I've, I've come down, is that, you know, I'm, as I have opportunity to share with any of these people and to try to get something into their gray matter, but they've all bought the lie. They've all bought the lie. And the lie is that this country was built on the backs of the black slaves. And it is nothing more than another propaganda tool that has been deployed against white Christians. You see, the Christians that came here and founded the early colonial charters and came with the charters to advance the Christian faith, that's the foundation that was in the late 1400s, the 1500s, and clear through much of the 1600s. Well, all during much of that time of the 1600s, or at least a good half of that century, and on into the 1700s, up until the time of the Constitution, I used to, when I did lectures and workshops on the money system 30 years ago, I would tell people the story about how one-third of the people were the king's men. One-third of the people were the 'er ne'er-do-wells sent over here from England. And the other third were supporting the other two-thirds. And it's never changed. One-third of the people are supporting the other two-thirds, while basically the other two-thirds secure their own place, secure their own financial well-being and so forth because they work in government and they always get the raises they need. Their job is never insecure. They're always secure in their jobs. They're always secure in their income. And then you have this other third that wants everybody to give them something. And then you have the third that is paying for and taking care of the other two-thirds. You know, when I think about this country, and, you know, some, some might be thinking about this and say, you know, what does any of this have to do with anything? Let me make it perfectly clear. 
I've got no love for this Constitution and its government that was created in 1789. It has brought us nothing, nothing but destruction. Think of your First Amendment, just that amendment alone, which the people believe they have. Freedom for all religions, not Yahweh's religion, all religions. It gave us unjust weights and measures in fiat currency, usury which has enslaved all Americans, black, white, red, and blue. A freedom of the press to propagandize the red man if it desires, the white man if it desires, the black man if it desires. Confiscation and progressive taxing authority contrary to that of the Creator. Freedom of speech, where one can lie and bear false witness against those who are political enemies, enemies of Christianity, enemies of Christ. Freedom to assemble, if the free press and the government agrees with your assembly. The one which purportedly protects your right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, there's no mechanism whatsoever for redressing any grievance nowhere in the document. Not even a single precedent has ever been laid in 230 years to give anybody a guide of how to redress their government. No, we're just supposed to elect more of the same because they're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the budgets. And if, dare say, one person slips through the crack and gets through without money, he will become twofold more son of hell than the rest of them. And we've got grand history on our side to prove it. That's what it has to do with things. It's high time we know some history. High time we wake up the people with more in the way of our historical understandings. And black people alike need to know who's striking them. And I guarantee you it is white ruling class as well as it is Judaized ruling class, Judaism ruling class, and black ruling class. The point that I see in these quotes that I read from numerous volumes of historical documentation is that nothing has changed. The ruling class rule, and they steal, kill, and destroy red, white, black, yellow. It doesn't matter.
if somebody doesn't say something, somebody's going to think that the tape's not working. Uh, <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, where do we focus? Where do we focus on a solution? That well, comes mind. You know, as I think about this, I think about Christ's words where he says there are going to be those that are going to come in that day and say to me, Lord, 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 did we not do all these things? Did we do all these mighty works in your name? You see, all these works that they do, they're in Christ's name. You see, because they're all for the good of the people. You see what I'm saying? We don't, we don't have to look at it and say, oh, they said, in Jesus' name, do this. In Jesus' name, do that. But no. In his name and under his name and with his shield and his banner, have they said and done all these things. While they were enslaving and so forth. And so to answer your question is, we do what we continue to do, which is pray and cry out. Because we need divine intervention. Amen. The only way we succeed, as you've reminded me, I've said before, is with him at the helm. Yeah. Nothing changes for our condition or anything else until we put him first. So to activate him, one must say we learn from our past, right? Right. In our past, what have they done to activate his moving? One thing they did is they cried out to him, didn't they? Amen. And and I'm talking about in in Egypt. So that means they prayed to him. Well, in that instance, the scripture basically conveys that he heard their cries, just like he heard Abel's cry, Abel's blood cry out. There are certain things that that reach the ears of a father, reach the ears of a mother. You know? It's those unspoken things. So, in, in, in one respect, he heard the cries because it's within his divine nature of his creation that he hears the cries, but there's something that has to be done if you want him to heal a land. Second Chronicles 7.14. Let's just go back to it again. <clears throat> I don't know why the church world you know, wants to 
you know, I'm seeing the signs going up all over again. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. I'm getting there. Seven fourteen. When my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray to me and seek my favor and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. And now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in the place. For I have chosen and hallowed this house that my name be, be, be there forever and my eyes and my heart shall be there continually. If thou will walk before me as thy father David did and do according to all that I have commanded thee and keep my statutes and my judges, I will establish the throne of thy kingdom as I covenanted with thy father David, saying, The ruler over Israel shall not be taken from thee. The activating statute, the activating clause for any prayer is to turn from that which you have done, which has caused you to come before him in prayer. Because I guarantee you, just about all of us come to him in prayer when we're in need more than we come to prayer with him, to him in thanksgiving and honor and praise and glory. And so there's an activating statute. There's an activating clause. And this church world, in this country, in this land, there should not be one person attending one church in this land until every church in this land has agreed that there is a problem, and the problem is with what they've been doing, and they turn from those ways, repent of those ways, and seek his face, and he will hear from heaven. And he will heal the land. We don't know what he will do in order to heal that land. He may send a death angel to wipe out one million or ten million or even a hundred million. That we would have to spend so long burying the dead, the nose, the stench in our noses would last so long. I just, the biblical record is clear to me. There is no other solution. Are any of you hearing it from any of the pulpits? Nope. They're too busy kneeling down to black people, genuflecting in front of them. And if they knew their history, and they knew their biblical history. We have no reason to apologize for anything other than acknowledging we failed in our servant role to do that which was necessary to stop wickedness from rising above us higher and higher. Thanks a lot, Doug. You made me aware of things I was not aware of. Therefore, I'm very angry. 
Well, it's no surprise to us that there's things that we do not know and things we have not known. By the way, this comes from a book. Fortunately, I did not have to take all that research and compile that research. It's from a book titled, They Were White and They Were Slaves, The Untold History of the Enslavement of Whites in Early America by Michael A. Hoffman II. Michael A. Hoffman II. And praise God for Michael Hoffman, Hoffman that he did the work that made it so that I could look at it all in one location. And he took the time to go to all the resources and to dig it all out and put it in front of us so that we might learn and that we might have some additional tools in our arsenal against the madness that's upon us. So I would encourage anybody who does not have a copy of that book, go order a copy of it. And I have some sources that have these types of books. Um, so if someone emails us at Repenter Parish at Gideon, or excuse me, Repenter Parish at ProtonMail.com, Repenter Parish at SBC Global uh, .net, I'm about ready to dump the AT&T email completely, um, and I think I'm going to go strictly to the Proton Mail here shortly. But when I do, I'll make sure everybody knows. But uh, um, just uh, very, very thankful, you know. Um, and so I would give people a source, um, you know, like Artisan Books and, and other sources to order these books from and these types of books that are so historically informative and so beneficial uh, to us and our race in America. There were white political prisoners. The Irish were prisoners. There's legal precedences that were set in the various colonies. Uh, there was even the use of blacks against whites in various conflagrations, going back all the way to the 1500s. Let me let me pose another question: Is it possible for us to coexist? God said that the only way that you exist with those that he told us would be pricks in our eyes and thorns in our sides was that they are obedient to the laws of God. One law for all the people. The people right now are saying they want a different law. So these cannot be interassociated or intermixed or intermingled in one society. The only way that it can possibly ever be is as God instructs it. 
if he did not instruct it that way, then it can't be done any other way. In spite of how everybody might feel emotionally about things or whatever twist they want to put on their Christianity, the fact remains, if you do it against and not according to the divine will, to the divine order and the divine plan, then it will not, because it cannot. You would not run your own household with ten sets of laws for seven children. And bear in mind, I said ten sets of laws for seven children. I didn't say ten laws for seven children. I said ten sets of laws for seven children. You see, because this one is different, so therefore you treat that one differently. This one is different, so therefore you treat that one different. Can you imagine that? I, I think we see that manifest all over in America right now. Exactly, we see that manifest right now. And a lot of the, a lot of the parents have been bra- raising children up with, the idea that there are different laws for well, different who children. Think, who do you think propagated that? That came out of that Salk book in the early 60s. Was his name Salk? The, the, the guy that wrote the book on how to raise children. you remember his oh, name, Fuck. Rich? Fuck. Fuck. That's right, Spock. Oh, oh, Spock. Yeah, and that's exactly what he said. You raise according to the child. Every child's unique, and and you must uh, you must approach them accordingly, because you got to know these nuances between the two. Yeah, where one you rule one way, the other you rule another way, and there's no punishment. Yeah, yeah. Don't ever, ever, ever be violent or cause a stimulation on their buttocks. Well, and see, here's the thing: blacks are complaining about black incarceration. The Bible doesn't have anything for incarceration. It's either restitution. Or the death penalty. And so if you're going to have to work off this type of stuff and you're going to be in economic bondage all your life because you continue to do the things that you do in terms of, uh, 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 you know, stealing and other, other violations of the law, then you're eventually going to mess up and you're going to wind up being somebody who's going to have to be uh, taken out uh, uh, under, the, under the statute of the death penalty because you'll eventually do it. So, that, you know, that's, that's the beauty of it. And all of these things ha- have, have attributed to all of this. Um, 
all of, you know, and this is something we've talked about taking up in these fellowships is taking up the laws of God and, you know, looking at them in modern application. You know, if somebody's going to uh, take a, a drug that causes, you know, near comatose, whatever, and does harm to somebody, they recognize and will realize that, you know, they will lose life. But this is the tough love that the do-gooders will not allow because they know better than God. They, they are more loving than God. They are more careful and more, you know, they're just because they refuse and reject. And then they wonder why all of this is upon us because we refuse to do what is in our own best interests. Everybody's own best interests. Those who would not have him rule over them, bring them before him and slay them. Amen. So, you know, I know sometimes we think, gosh, we rehash or we hash or, you know, and we're, we're doing the same things in terms of we hear everything, um, and we find ourselves saying, how do we implement? What do we do? And we've got to encourage the brethren. We've got to encourage those in the churches that we do know that, that their, their churches begin to teach these truths and to teach the... I mean, we know it. We know the whole biblical record has been completely confounded, which is what we've been building up to and many of these fellowships of these last several weeks, because this, this whole doctrine on the seed line doctrine and other doctrines are all things that have grown up out of various uh, religions of okay. the world. How would you translate seek my faith? In my uh, seek my faith? Seek my face. In in modern language, that's not modern enough, is it? Well, uh, seek my face. I want to see his face. I'm looking for his face. Right? The only way you can see his face is to recognize the righteousness that is in him. So if you want to seek his face, you seek after his righteousness, and you've seen his face. The law is spiritual. It's not made for the righteous. It's made for the unrighteous, for the murderers, the whoremongers, the thieves, the idolaters. Well, I, I'm starting here with law. Sitting here looking at this activation. Humble themselves. Okay, we 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 can ascertain that to humble yourself is to realize you're not God. You're the creation. I think, he, I think his face is his law. Because if okay. you see, you recognize people by their faces, right? Yeah. And you recognize our God by his law. Okay, so step one, we 
we humble ourselves and then we petition God and we seek his face and we turn direction from our wicked ways. Nobody's done that. Nowhere. It's not that nobody's done that. What is it? Not enough people have done this. How many does it take? I think when you're honest with the scriptures, he wants righteousness in the leadership. And as it says, in, as I always say, the activating statute is there in 17. If you walk before me as your father David did and do all according to I have commanded me and keep my statutes and my judgment. You see, the church world has said his law is not applicable. His judgments have been done away. Right. So what I'm saying is, has anybody done this activation? No. We individually, we individually are keeping his commandments, those of us who believe, but our leadership is not keeping the commandments. How can your land be healed when your leadership won't do it? That's what Nazra and Nehemiah did, is in the leadership they changed what they needed to change. They put away the things that needed to be put away even know who our leadership are. Do we? Well, I understand the point that you're raising because you're saying, well, we have congressmen and senators, but they're really not the leaders. Well, however, uh, however, they are standing in positions of leadership, and if they don't know who is striking us, and they don't know It's like I say, the whole thing is just so preposterous. They call themselves congressmen and senators, and they've never read the Constitution, which says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a payment and tender of debt. That's my point. These leaders are predicated on a deceptive document. So how can they be legitimate leaders? They're part of the problem. Yeah, they are. And the church is part of the problem. Yes, you, 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 you're right. I'm just asking questions because I'm pleading my ignorance. Uh, no, you're, you're, you're pleading the thing which we all plead is what will it take? What can we do? And I'm the answer to the words. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I say. And I hear all those questions because these are the questions we have. My responses to you are not as if you don't know this. My responses are these are the only responses that we have. Amen. These are the only. These are the only responses. I, I know you know the responses, and I'm not giving you the responses as if you don't know. I'm saying this is the only thing we know. These are the responses because 
we're not getting the the community, the people, the church world to stop doing what it's been doing and turn from those wicked ways and give the path to God a reason for him to come and heal our land because he believes that by George, I think they've got it. I believe they actually mean it. You know, it would be just like in our own household. We tell them what the law is. We say what we're going to do if they do something. And then every time we change the marker and we change the marker and we change the marker, is there any reason for the child to ever believe that the obedience to the law, the obedience to the command has any meaning whatsoever? And the answer is, Absolutely not. It's just a set of guidelines. This is the thing that Esther laments to two or three of people that he's associated with as a young man. You know, these are guidelines. These are principles, you know. Just live in accordance with the best you can. Meanwhile, they're in bondage. They're in servitude. We read the you know, the, the description. Yep. Oh, well, we're, we're all after a utopia, you see. You guys are just after the utopia, and the rest of us are realists out here, you see. We understand we can't find this utopia that you're looking for. We're the realists out here. We're just living our day-to-day. Meanwhile, we just keep going further and further into bondage. Our leaders keep driving us further into no-win wars and agreements and take our children and our sons and daughters. It's all there. And if we don't have any desire or any compunction to change one bit of it, then we get exactly what we deserve. And that's why we try to keep ourselves right with God because, boy, when he's had enough, we want to be on the right side. I wish I could give more. I plead with God as I sit here with you now as two or more gathered. I plead with our Heavenly Father were you to give any one of us or anybody who's crying these same cries and prayers. The direction as you gave Gideon. The direction as Samson desired. The direction that any one of these in our biblical record. If you were to give any direction. Father, I thank God that our idols are being torn down. I honestly do. Because they are nothing but idols. They've been set up. We've been conditioned to worship them in many respects. And they've been idols. They have been idols before our eyes.
looking to them as icons of who we are or what we are. And you know, it is who we are. It is what we are. We are violators of your law, transgressors, in need of salvation, in need of redemption, bound under the chains of death and darkness because we will not obey the command. We refuse the command. We allow the users in the land and the users rise higher and higher and we go lower and lower. Father, we would that you could give us a sign, that you could give us any indication of what we're to do. So the only thing we know to do is to keep crying out to you. And when the day comes that you move across the land in a intention to bring destruction upon the wicked, we pray that you find us worthy to wield the sword with you or to wield it in your behalf as you instructed Gideon to tear down the idols, to tear down the Baal idols. And boy, we've got a bunch of them in this land, Father. So hear our prayers, hear our cries. Father, there's blood all over the land, and we know that you don't like coming in the land that the blood has not been cleansed for, that it has not been repented of, that it has not been forgiven. Hasn't even been asked to be forgiven of. I mean, it's probably been asked. I I know that we do. But Lord, not in a way that's pleasing to your to your nostrils, I'm sure. So hear our prayer, hear our cries, and continue to give us direction. Father, work in every one of us to stay the course, to not waver. That wickedness upon us now is is increasing and give us the strength in the hour of need. I ask it in your blessed holy name. Father, I also lift up Crystal to you this evening in prayer for the child that she's in labor with. I pray, Father, that if the hour is not yet, it is early, that you allow her body to come into conformity with giving the child some extra couple of weeks for its proper growth. and I put this young child before you as well. Those that are yours, Father, wherever they are, I thank you for being with them and caring for them before we even ask. Praise and glory be yours. 
may you once again reign in the land of the North American continent and your people wherever they are across the world. I ask it in the blessed holy name of your Son that you gave for us, you in the flesh, Son of Man. Amen. Amen. Well, you all have a good night. Hey, Doug. Yeah. Who's Crystal now? Uh, Crystal's uh, a niece. Have you got Have you got the recorder off yet? I could go off the record. <laughs>